0: We are starting, though, talking about Ticketmaster. And who out there hasn't at some point purchased a ticket through Ticketmaster? or at least tried to. Well, earlier today, Ticketmaster officials were grilled about that spectacular breakdown last year during the sale of Taylor Swift concert tickets. Both Republicans and Democrats on a Senate Judiciary Committee debated taking possible action against Ticketmaster, doing things like making it so tickets must be non-transferable, that to cut down on resales, calling for more transparency when it comes to ticket fees. Even talk of splitting Ticketmaster and Live Nation, saying that might be necessary in the future. Well, not everyone agrees with that. Not everyone blames Ticketmaster for what happened. Joining me now is music publicist and commentator Eric Alpert to talk more about this. Eric, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Good to chat with you.
0: A little different. We're normally talking more about specific bands and music, but today we are, of course, talking about Ticketmaster, uh, the company being grilled a little bit by senators as it was asked many questions at that committee, talking, again, about the chaos from the Taylor Swift sales. What are your thoughts on, well, first off, your thoughts on on how that happened and kind of the breakdown during those concert tickets when they went on sale?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think what people have to realize is that Ticketmaster is just such a giant, amazing system for the music industry, sports industry, anything that has to do with selling tickets. They do about 500 million ticket sales a year in more than 30 countries. There's not a lot of companies out there that can handle that kind of a demand and any anger that I think people feel towards maybe not getting first row for Taylor Swift at $65 um, has long gone um, by the wayside. People used to complain about the high cost of tickets all the way back in the 1920s. In fact, in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of the bands that we love and hold near and dear to our hearts, like Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or the Who, were also called out for charging a whopping $4.90 for their tickets back in the day. But I understand people's frustration. I think the problem becomes is that most people don't realize that Ticketmaster is nothing more than a nameless, faceless front for the artist to sell the ticket. So when you have somebody like Taylor Swift, which is um, happens to be one of the biggest artists in the world, and certainly one of the most in demand artists, and announces 53 dates all at once, you are going to have some backlog, you're going to have some leeway, and what other people kind of don't realize is that the artist is the one that sets the price for the ticket. The only thing that Ticketmaster and, um, and other companies that have to do with the, the, the getting of the show, they take it off of those fees. So when you complain about $46 in fees over a $1,500 ticket, Ticketmaster actually shares that with a number of other companies to keep the site going. The artist dictates everything else, but people don't want to ever ever be mad at their favorite artist. So I get the anger. It's just very misplaced.
0: (laughs) Well, you've kind of answered my question because I wanted to get a bit more into that in that all of this anger is uh, targeted at Ticketmaster and Live Nation, but, uh, and I'm glad you got into that because the artist really does... Can control everything or, or have control in the number of tickets that are released, pre-sale tickets, as you mentioned, the price. And and it's not as though Taylor Swift didn't know. She couldn't probably have predicted that the site was going to crash, but she must have known there was going to be that huge demand.
1: Uh, absolutely. And, and everybody played their part correctly. Taylor Swift played the victim like most artists do whenever they face a fan backlash. Even Bruce Springsteen did a very rare public statement about ticket sales when he said that sometimes it's a little bit confusing that even he doesn't understand. Bruce Springsteen understands it very, very well, make no mistake about that. But I think for Taylor Swift, another artist specifically, um you know, they're they're people. They're people just like us. When they see other artists that are raking in three, four, five hundred million dollars on their tour, the first call to their is to their manager saying, "How come I'm not getting that? And how come Mick Jagger has six homes, but I only have four? Or how come you know this happens, but I don't get that? And you and I are the exact same as them. We never want to leave money on the table for a job that we do very, very well. And these artists." Are are no different. Um, But, you know, where where I think, you know, when we're going to be talking about what's going to happen next, I, I think one of the things that could be done is that the the price of the ticket fee needs to be upfront along with the ticket. That's probably the least that is going to happen. And that actually might be the most that will happen. So when you go in and you get rid of, you know, your anger and shock of, of that ticket price, and then you see that there's more fees on top of that, just include those fees along with the ticket. It'll make it a little, it a little bit easier. Um, and also, you know, I, I I just don't see a lot of changes in this. I In the last number of years, Ticketmaster and the artist have done something very coying and very psychological. They never reveal what the ticket price is going to be when they make the announcement. And the reason is that they've taken a cue from car salesmen and other people. They're selling you the sizzle and then the steak. So what they're trying to do is hype up the demand, get the buzz, get all the the positive attributions. And then when you go in and you choose your seat, that's when you know what the price is going to be. And auctions will tell you and auctioneers will tell you the more excited people get, the harder it is to get tickets for something, the more and the higher people are going to spend.
0: (laughs) One of the recommendations or something with the committee today, Republicans and Democrats on this committee, taking a look at possible action, one of those ideas put forward was making tickets non-transferable, and that was to cut down on resales and and requiring more transparency in those fees, like you said. Have some artists not done that in the past, though, made them non-transferable? You have to show the credit card that was used to purchase them from Ticketmaster and have tried to cut down on that before?
1: Yeah, a number, a number of them have. In fact, I went to go see one show. It was Prince's last tour where you got a maximum of two tickets and both those people had to be at the door with ID. Um, but he underplayed those places. He, he knew he was going to sell out ten times bigger places than what he ended up playing on his last tour just to kind of create the demand. What the big industry story about that kind of, of, of change is is that when um, when Miley Cyrus went out on tour, there was a lot of parents complaining by the fact that they couldn't get tickets for their kids. Well, then Miley Cyrus then went to a paperless system where you had to show ID, the tickets were on your phone, and guess what, that tour didn't sell out. And what that might have told the industry is that people don't really want to not have the ability to sell their ticket if they need to. There's a lot of people out there, and listeners might know one of them or be one of them, where they will get a couple of extra tickets in order to sell the extra one in order to pay for the tickets that they do want. They want to have that leeway in case if something happens in medical or in health or trips or something goes wrong and they can't attend those tickets, they're not stuck with the tickets. So although that I hear that a lot, I'm not convinced whatsoever that the general public truly wants to do that. And. That's, you know, has anybody ever been to the airport recently where it takes you four hours to get on the flight? Imagine now 22,000 people all trying to get into 16 exits in a large arena. You're going to have to start lining up the day before just to get in.
0: (laughs) And what about (laughs) artists that have in the past, I seem to recall Pearl Jam tried to go it without Ticketmaster and then gave up. It just didn't work because, like you said, Ticketmaster is the biggest ticket seller, 500 million tickets a year. I mean, is it even feasible to think? if an artist really wants to take a stand that they could go about having concerts and selling tickets without Ticketmaster
1: for sure for sure absolutely all they have to do is just start and buy their own buildings because um, it's, it's really the <laughs> only way around it and I love Pearl Jam don't get me wrong but even even then Ticketmaster had a little bit of an arrogance toward them and say you know what you can absolutely go off and do it on your own you just can't do it in the buildings that Ticketmaster already has an exclusive license for or that Live Nation has an exclusivity on booking those bands in there which comes down to really the real reason why we're talking is that is the the breakup of Ticketmaster and Live Nation, the promoter, um, is that going to be feasible um, when, you know, big business and, and free market has based, and the politicians have basically dictated that they could actually merge back in, in the 1990s? That's what caused it. So when Pearl Jam said that they want to try to do something different, that's okay. Go do something different. But good luck on finding A, really good venues. B, a really good ticketing system. That can handle 12 million, 15 million tickets at once, like Pearl Jam can get, um, and and see, um, try to play for, for you know $40 a ticket, and I bet you they can. Um, and I again love the band, but I think that there's just a real high cost now in going out on tour. Everything is more expensive. Stopping is more expensive, insurance is more expensive, especially because you now have to have COVID insurance. Um, The price of steel and metal is through the roof, so you can't build the stages. Electricity is higher food, catering, parking, all those things are much higher in price than they were pre-COVID, and we're the ones that are going to be paying for that with, with the ticket, not going to be the bands.
0: Do you think this committee, or is there anything that could or needs to be changed to, to make it so, even because in the, the tailors of sales, there were people that were willing to pay those prices, but six hours, eight hours into the process, they were told, mm, sorry, there's an error, you're going to have to start all over again. Does anything or could anything change to make that uh, smoother.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna put all of my benefit toward that those people actually did all the right things and they did get booted out of the system, and that absolutely is Ticketmaster's fault. And if that does happen to a lot of people, and I'm talking more than like a couple of thousand of. A couple of million that are online. If it's happening to a couple of people and they're ranting and raving on, on Ticketmaster, it does that to most sites. You do that, you have those problems when you're on Amazon you, or anything else. Um, but I think that, you know, what will probably end up happening after all of this blustering by the politicians is that um, Ticketmaster will do an upgrade and uh, make sure that something like this never happens again and they'll be a little bit smarter telling the artists that maybe you shouldn't release 53 shows within a two-hour period. Maybe let's straddle them, where if you get a code because you're part of the fan club, maybe you only have a two-hour window and that's it. But I have to tell you, though, as a publicist, this is probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to Taylor Swift. (laughs) Not only is she being talked about around the world, but she made it to the U.S. government. And for an artist, this is all amazing publicity that you just cannot buy.
0: That is uh, for sure, definitely. Eric, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. But as always, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to go line up and get a mortgage <laughs> on my house for my next tickets.
0: Well, you may have heard this story on the news. The family that operates one of Surrey, B.C.'s longstanding farms is continuing to fight. They're trying to save hundreds of acres of land from industrial development.
2: So the farm's been around for 103 years I'm a fifth generational farmer. I don't think many businesses make it past the third generation so I mean it means a lot to be continuing on uh, the legacy and to be working towards food security in this country. I think more of the future generations of farmers to come I think farming is one of the hardest professions out there but I also think it's one of the most rewarding and I mean look at me I grew up farming and I never wanted to come back when I, when I left the farm and um, took a lot of a lot of long conversations and decision making to make me come back and I am so happy I did but I think of future generational farmers that aren't even born yet, um, will there even be any land to farm? If we are developing our most productive farmland, why would anyone want to become a farmer?
0: That was Tyler Heppel. He is the production manager at Heppel Farms, uh, Heppel Potato. And he spoke with Global News yesterday about the fact that the family has long leased that property from the federal government. However, that land has now been put on a list of properties that the federal government plans to sell off. Well, joining us now is Mike Bose, a Surrey City Councillor, to talk more about this. Councillor Bose, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: What are your thoughts when you hear about this and the fight that the Happel Farm is going through right now to keep this land as agricultural land?
3: Well, as a farmer and a former land commissioner, uh, it's a tough battle. And it's nice to see that we have young people wanting to come into our industry and fight for the industry.
0: What more can be done, do you think, though? Because uh, they're talking about the fact that yes, they leased this property from the federal government. They've done so for many, many years, but now that it's on this list of properties that could be sold off, they're not sure what they could possibly do to save it.
3: Um, I think uh, continuing putting pressure on the on the federal government and demonstrating the the value of this land and the absolute necessity that of keeping it in production in the province of bc i mean it this isn't just a surrey story it it's actually a western canadian story this is the most unique land in all of canada that it can't be replicated anywhere else and it's the last 200 acres we've already lost 1600 to development of this land
0: was there any reason given or have you heard any reason from the federal government as to why after all of these years this property is now on that list of properties that could be sold off
4: um,
3: no, not formally, but you know, one can just surmise that uh, it landed uh, in a developing area that uh, they are no longer using. It was an old telecommunications site. Um, we've, we've known it would be disposed of sooner or later for 25 years.
0: So it's just kind of catching up or the, the, the kind of the inevitable catching up?
3: It's kind of the inevitable catching up. And my position has always been that the federal government should maintain this land, that the federal minister of agriculture should, should declare that it's of interest to, to uh, the ministry of agriculture and that uh, it be transferred there and maintain its federal property in its current form. Because, I mean, this is vital to food security in Western Canada.
0: How does the with with the family now then lobbying or or asking that it be protected because it's federal land? I'm guessing it can't just be put into BC's ALR. Or or what role do you think does the ALR play in this?
3: Um, I think that the ALR plays a a big role. Uh, Holding the public hearing um, and actually having a a public display of of support for this land is, is very important. The land Reserve could could put it into the into the uh, reserve, but the federal government doesn't have to abide by that what we need is, is pressure from from the residents of Surrey and BC to force the federal government or encourage the federal government to see the value of this land and its production productive capabilities and covenant it to be uh, Annual vegetable production in perpetuity. Uh, it's a process that's been done before. Uh, Garden City lands in Richmond.
0: So there is precedent of this happening in the past? Yes. Yeah. And, and I guess in this case, too, obviously the the family, the Heppel family, and, and I think he talked about the five generations, I think he mentioned, of, of farmers in that family. But because yep. they're not the land owners, is, it, is that what makes it much more difficult in that, yes, they farm it and they lease the land, but it is owned by the federal government?
3: That, that is exactly it. It, it. it is so difficult when a farmer doesn't own the land. But with the value of land today, so much of our our food production is going to be done on on leased land, and it uh, it doesn't matter who owns the land. Um, we need we need to understand the, the value. And if we've learned anything through the past four years with COVID and supply chain issues and the ever changing climate and the difficulties that we're going to face uh, providing. Uh, an adequate safe food supply for western canada um, we just we have to continue to drive that message and encourage people to protect all of our productive land but most importantly this land that cannot be reproduced anywhere else
0: uh, so at this point, then, uh, the, we know that uh, the farm made its case, uh, the members of the family made their case to the uh, the Agricultural Land Commission asking that the property be added to the ALR. But if, like you said, the federal government, even if that decision was made to put it in the ALR, if the federal government doesn't have to abide by that, uh, is there any point in even doing that?
3: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's part of the fight. It's part of the encouragement of, of getting people to recognize and getting uh, government officials to recognize the, the importance of this land and uh, eventually coming around and accepting its inclusion into the land reserve and covenanting it so that the, land, the federal government can't change and then just decide to opt out. Uh, if it's covenanted to be uh, vegetable production in perpetuity, then, then we can maintain that land for generations to come.
0: And is time of, uh, of concern in this case? Like you said, it's kind of uh, been decades in the making, knowing that this, this land was likely to be put on that list. But at this point, then, it, how important is it that this be done sooner rather than later?
3: I think it's very important that it's done sooner than later. Um, as was mentioned last night by two MPs, uh, the process has been has been paused. The disposition process has been paused. So that gives us that gives us hope that uh, this land uh, will be reconsidered and hopefully uh, remain in the federal government and be protected.
0: And were those MPs that came to Surrey Council?
3: I don't know. They were at the uh, the. Uh, ALC public hearing last night. Oh right, uh,
0: sorry, but right. but they but they were there and present to because I, I know some have been asking, well, where is the federal government on this? Why aren't we hearing from the MPs? But uh, that's good to know or to hear that there were MPs there addressing this. Yes,
3: yes. it was a, it was a, a, an amazing group of people. Um, every person who was there spoke in favor of it. That spoke. Um, we I I personally have not received. Any negative comment about this, other than uh, one, I've even I've even received uh, an email from as far away as Portugal.
0: Really? So somebody in yeah. Portugal? Did they have ties to this area, or, or how did it get the attention of someone in Portugal? Well,
3: she this this particular lady grew up in Richmond, uh, daughter of uh, Portuguese uh, immigrants. And she's, she moved back to finish her education there, and she lives and works there. Uh, how she heard about it, I'm not exactly sure, but I did get an email from Portugal.
0: Hmm. And so, that's, I understand, sorry, there are more than, what is the number? It was more than 75,000 signatures. So, so clearly this, this is important to people.
3: Yes, and I, I think generally people have understood through this pandemic process that our food security is, is tenuous and we need to be pr- protecting the, the, the properties that are going to be producing our food into the future. Uh, this, this property is, is not adversely affected by climate change, as uh, most of our lowlands. And when we had the November 2021 20, floods in, a, in the Sumas Prairie, this land was still producing food.
0: All right. Well, Councillor, we will leave it there for today, though I'm sure there will be much more discussion on this in the days and weeks to come. Thank you so much for joining us, though, to talk a bit more about it.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we are going to take a look at what the Bank of Canada is doing or what is widely expected the bank will do. And that is raise the trend-setting interest rate this week by another quarter of a percentage point. Where does this leave us and what might we be looking at in the future with any additional raises of that rate? Well, Pedro Antunes is joining us now, Chief Economist with the Conference Board of Canada. Thank you so much for being with us.
5: Well, thanks for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure.
0: With the expectation that the Bank of Canada will be raising that rate again tomorrow, what are your thoughts on that?
5: Well, um... Honestly, I I think it's uh you know, probably we're due for a pause and I think the bank is uh kind of playing very tough. Uh they don't want to be seen as uh kind of taking their foot off the brake pedal on the economy by raising rates. Um, and I think they've messaged that they rather err on the side of being uh too prudent, in other words, raising rates too much than too little. So, uh, you know, I agree. I think we're probably going to see a 25 basis point increase uh, tomorrow from the bank. This means that we've seen rates in since March of last year come up by 425 basis points, so very uh, rapid increases um, uh, over the last uh, number of months. Uh, but hopefully from there on, uh, I think there's some positive signs on the inflation front, uh, and hopefully we'll see the bank pause now uh, over the rest of 2023.
0: Is it getting to the point, you think, that the bank has achieved what it was hoping for as far as bringing inflation down a bit or having that kind of an impact? Has it kind of, I suppose, reached its intended goal?
5: Well, uh, as I'm sure you've seen, and inflation numbers have been trending down. The last number that we saw for December of, this, uh, of last year was at 6.3%. Uh, it's been a slow process but there are some really good indicators I think within uh, what we're seeing on on um, on the inflation front and and and, and more broadly uh, that suggests that we're headed in the right direction. I think most importantly is when we think about the bank's monetary policy, the raising interest rate, what they're trying to do is get consumers to ease up, to save more, to not borrow, certainly. Uh, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that in the retail sales numbers. Uh, they're essentially flattened out in Canada over the last few months. Uh, we're certainly seeing it in home prices and real estate activity. Uh, and that's playing itself out there as well. Uh, the other piece that perhaps isn't as talked about um, is durable goods. I mean, there was a surge in demand for, you know, essentially home furnishings and uh, mountain bikes and you name it. We couldn't spend during the pandemic on services and, and restaurants, so we spent on these types of good, uh, durable goods, and we're seeing that ease up very dramatically, and in fact, prices easing up as well. So that's all good news for the inflation numbers. The other piece that's really important is commodity prices. Uh, I know we're still seeing very uh, expensive food prices, but we know that grain and other commodity prices have kind of come back to uh, pre-war levels. So hopefully that'll filter through into the, you know, into a households uh, spending um, or where they spend uh, fairly soon.
0: And I know Vancouver tends to be a little bit different when we're looking at trends and, and cause and effect. It, it can be a bit of an outlier when we're talking about real estate. But when we look at the housing market, and you mentioned we've certainly seen the reaction in the housing market because of the increase in the rates. Is that what, what was expected as far as the amount that the average price fell? Is, is that a good thing still, or or did it perhaps go too far?
5: well you're right that vancouver well vancouver's had a very hot market for decades obviously um, but certainly during the pandemic we saw prices in vancouver and across canada and the rest of bc i would say uh, really take off not i would argue not so much because we saw huge demand but because there was uh, just a lot more credit people had saved a lot they weren't spending on travel they wanted more housing and so that drove uh prices up across canada in fact In many uh, markets, uh, including outside of Canada, the US, and Europe, uh, similar kind of patterns. Uh, I think the correction we've seen uh, since essentially the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, spring of 2022 i think january february or more or less when when prices peaked last year i think the correction we've seen yes in part due to higher rates in part just because activity was just too too crazy it was just too frothy and some of that had to come off and i think it's been generally healthy to see prices coming off a little bit of course keeping in mind that uh, those that came into the game at the peak uh, are going to be feeling the pinch of this especially if they took on new mortgages
0: and what about the idea of expecting the economy to go into a recession or even the fear that it's going to go into recession as we head further into 2023?
5: Well, I think this is where uh, monetary policy is, is, you know, essentially the, the crux of the question around monetary policy. Are we going to see rates raised too strongly, too uh, too high, uh, that it eventually results into, uh, you know, essentially bankruptcies, uh, consumers really Uh, easing up on consumption or declining uh, in terms of their consumer spending, uh, which would then cause layoffs, et cetera. I I would say that most forecasts out there, especially given that the inflation numbers are kind of headed in the right direction. Now, most forecasts are really talking about a soft landing and that is essentially a scenario where monetary policy is successful. Uh, As I mentioned, we've already seen the impact of that on housing and on, on consumer spending overall. Uh, so that's I think a good sign that uh, we're we are going to see this uh, this kind of successful scenario play out but it does also suggest that there's going to be uh, you know very weak growth in in the economy this year now having said that um, I think when you look at the pain of You know, lower consumer spending, perhaps households saving more, et cetera. I think uh, we're not going to see that pain, or at least most of the forecasts aren't really looking at sharp pain in terms of job losses. Uh, And that's because labor markets are still very tight. Uh, In fact, in BC, we've seen, and Canada, we've seen very good uh, employment growth over the last few months of 2022. So we're off to a very solid start to the year uh, for 2023. So I, I think. This is not going to be a recession that has the same kind of impact on uh, job losses in households that we've seen in the past, certainly nothing like we've seen in 2020 or in 2007, 2008.
0: And when you talk about two households saving more, uh, are you talking about people actually saving more in that they're not spending? Is, could it also be, though, that households, because things are costing so much more, it's not that they're, they're saving the money, they're just, there just isn't any left over?
5: Well, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and when we look at the aggregate numbers, it's it's uh, obviously, uh, you know, when we're looking at things like mortgages and arrears or the stresses on households in terms of bankruptcies, these kinds of indicators, they're still in very good shape. I mean, overall, Um, You know, households have done very, very well through the pandemic because of a lot of the support programs, because of their saving, uh, not spending on um, essentially travel and and other services. Uh, So we know that a lot of households are in in pretty good shape. However, uh, you know, households that are on the lower income side of things, obviously, they're feeling the pinch of this. And you're absolutely right. When we see inflation numbers as, as strong as they are, when we're seeing food prices, which take up such a big part, of uh, lower income households spending uh, you know food prices increasing 11 percent and still uh, inflation is in in that range this is very painful for some um, so yes absolutely i think there there are some households that are going to be uh, holding back on their spending because they can't afford it um, but overall uh, you know there is room for uh, f- uh, you know for spending to continue what we're what the bank is targeting is to get those other folks that have savings uh, to ease up on the, on their spending.
0: and uh, curious too, when we look at and again this much anticipated hike that's going to be happening tomorrow, how long does it generally take though, till we see the full impact of a rate hike?
5: Well, that's a really important question. And this is why I think the bank uh, should take a pause on interest rate hikes, because we've seen essentially 425 basis points, assuming we get another 25 tomorrow, uh, over less than a year. Uh, And we know that most households, even those that recently took on uh, mortgages, etc., they take them over a five-year term in Canada. And so by the time you start feeling the pinch of a renewal, you know, and, and everyone that's in that kind of market feels that pinch. Uh, it does take time. We know from past analysis uh, that it takes about 12 to 18 months before we see the peak impact of an interest rate hike on the economy. So this is where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's that uncertainty around is monetary policy too tight? Uh, is it enough? Are we going to see inflation no, uh, numbers down? And again, I go back to what the, you know, what the Bank of Canada can control in terms of our domestic economy. I think we are seeing the success on, on, on many fronts. So hopefully uh, the bank will take that decision to, uh, to, to um, uh, essentially the pause on rate hikes.
0: All right. Pedro Antunes, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. I appreciate you coming on the show.
5: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: 206 on this Tuesday afternoon while the nominations for the 95th Academy Awards were revealed earlier today and who better to join us to talk about this than Rick Forchuk, movie blogger at Rick's Picks. Good afternoon to you.
4: Good afternoon, Jill. It's sort of like getting the old band back together. It's been a long time since we've talked.
0: It has been. It feels like it's very early on a Sunday morning, but here we are. It's true. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk. Thank you so much for doing this, uh, because I know there are still a lot of people that look forward to watching the Academy Awards, maybe if you don't even watch any other awards programs. And we saw the nominees, uh, the nominations come out today. So what's your first take on the films and the people who were nominated?
4: Well, good question, Jill. The first take, uh, everybody's going to be unhappy about something. (laughs) You can't please everybody. Uh, I thought that uh, the mix this year of big blockbuster movies, such as Top Gun, getting a Best Picture nomination, and the smaller uh, independent ones like The Banshees of Incheren, uh was an excellent mix, and I think it was a tip of the hat to all of the right movies. You know, going back historically, generally speaking, the big blockbuster popcorn movies don't get Oscar nominations. They just don't, uh, because the Academy tends to be such an esoteric organization that if something is great for the common people, well, it's just not good enough for them. Uh, but that certainly changed. So we see Top Gun Maverick with a Best Picture nomination. Uh, we see Avatar, The Way of Water with a Best Picture nomination. Those are two big popcorn movies. They're just great entertainment films. And um, I'm glad to see that they're nominated. Uh, also good to see a mix of streaming service films and a mix of smaller independent ones. Uh, for example, the movie Tar. Uh, this is an interesting film with Kate Blanchett. Uh, not very many people, I think, have seen this. It doesn't play on that many screens, but it deserves the Oscar nominations that it got. Uh, Women Talking, that's directed by Canada's own Sarah Polly, uh, also has a nomination for Best Picture, and that's a bit of a surprise. You wouldn't think a film such as this about abuse in a in a small tightly knit religious community would foster an oscar nomination but it did so overall Jill, i'm not unhappy with any of this i think it's good news and uh, delighted to see elvis uh, you know, we got the uh, the jailhouse rock off the top and uh, elvis is a great movie i thought it was fabulous it's flawed but i thought it was a fabulous entertainment piece so uh, all of that to say I am not at all unhappy with the way the nominations went for the big ones. Not at all.
0: All right. Have you seen all of the films that are nominated for Best Picture?
4: I have not seen Triangle of Sadness. I've not seen that movie. And to my knowledge, it's not played in our area. But I've seen everything else. Yes.
0: All right. I, and, and interesting what you said there, too, is I haven't seen Women Talking. Uh, I've read the book, so I, I know the storyline. But it is interesting when you see that that film is up against something like Avatar or up against uh, Top Gun. Yeah,
4: and you, you could argue for sure that that's not a fair comparison. Women Talking with a budget of 4 or $5 million up against uh, movies with hundreds of millions of dollars of budget. However, uh, Women Talking, if you've read the book, uh, you know this story and you know it well. Uh, the movie doesn't take quite as light a touch as does the book. Hmm. Um, for those who have read the book, even though it's very difficult subject matter, there are some uh, scenes and some set pieces in the book that are actually quite humorous and quite light. Now uh, That doesn't happen in the movie, and I think that's for a reason, first of all. You can never get all those pages into a two-hour film. Uh, secondly, I think that uh, Sarah Pauly had her own idea of where this film should go. Uh, but um, good movie. And it's hard to catch up to them all. It's very, very hard to catch up to them all because they don't all play in big theaters. Uh, some of the smaller ones come and go very quickly, but then they show up on streaming. But in general terms, Jill um, and you and I've had this conversation many times before, in general terms, I want to see a movie on the big screen. That's the way it was built. That's what it was designed to be uh, done, shown in that fashion. And, um, you know, seeing them streaming later is okay, but it's not the same as going into a movie theater with a bunch of like minded people to get a great big experience with big screen, big sound and a big difference, Joe.
0: No, it's uh, very true, a very different experience. Uh, We won't have time to go through everything, but let's look at the actors and actresses in a leading role. And one of the names that stuck out to me in the actor category uh, was Brendan Fraser, who uh, came back. So many people, well, we we didn't really know what he was doing and and were pleasantly surprised to see him back.
4: Yeah, now he's wearing a fat suit. That's what he's doing. We found out what he's been doing. And um, I didn't care for this movie. I thought it was overblown. I thought that um, it got an awful lot of press from people that were just saying, watch and see how inclusive I am. Watch me do this. However, uh, Fraser's performance was outstanding, and he's fully well-deserved of the Oscar. And um, I also uh, like Colin Farrell for the Banshees in the uh, He's always fair, fair value, anything he shows up in. Uh, the one that stands out most of all for me, Jill, is Austin Butler in Elvis. He came out of nowhere. He just came out of nowhere and he captured Elvis Presley in a phenomenal fashion, did a wonderful job. And when you see him as not Elvis, uh, when he's being interviewed on a talk show, I look at him and I can't find Elvis there. But when you see him in the movie, I can't find not Elvis there. He just is the guy. So I thought it was a great performance, Joe.
0: Yeah, now, well, that's certainly a ringing endorsement, if that's if that's your takeaway from uh, seeing him in that role. Uh, what about actress in a leading role in the uh, nominations there?
4: Yeah, well, these are all good ones. Uh, we've got Cate Blanchett for Tar, uh, Anna D'Armes in Blonde, uh, that's Marilyn Monroe's story, uh, Andrea Riseborough in To Leslie, which I have not yet seen, uh, Michelle Williams in The Fablemans. She was quite good in that, I thought. Uh, but the one that uh, I think this is my pick already is Michelle Yeoh in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Michelle Yeoh is amazing. Everything she touches is successful. She's a remarkable performer, uh, does things very, very well. She's in a remake of... Uh, Crouching tiger, hidden dragon that's coming out in the next four or five weeks. And everything, everywhere, all at once is not everybody's cup of tea. It's a uh, science fiction film with all of these multiverses of madness running each, every which way. But she is remarkable in this movie, uh, as is Kate Marinsett and Tar. In fact, um, uh, other than um, uh, Andrea Rose, right, Riceboro, uh, sorry, uh, I didn't see to Leslie, so I can't comment on that. But everybody else, fair value for the nomination, Joe.
0: All right. And directing as well. I know a lot of people are always interested. It doesn't always match. Best picture doesn't mean best director or vice versa. And even if you didn't love the film, I think you can oftentimes still appreciate if it's been directed well. What are your thoughts on the directors who are in that nomination field this time?
4: Yeah, we've got Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. We've got Todd Field for Tar, uh, Ruben Auslan for Triangle of Sadness. Uh, Everything, everywhere, all at once, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, and Banshees of Inishren by Martin Martin McDonough is the director there. Um, One of the comments I saw earlier today was that uh, because no female directors had been nominated, uh, women do not have a voice at the Oscars. Um, I really have a problem with that kind of comment because uh, I think that the Academy looks at the quality and uh, the qualities of the things that they're nominating, and if a woman happened not to have, Uh, A film that uh, had the gravity that they were looking for, no nomination. But one way or the other, I'm okay with it. Um, The Fablemans is the one that sticks out for me because uh, although it got great press and everybody loved it, I liked it well enough. But I thought it was a a vanity project for Steven Spielberg, telling the story of how he became Steven Spielberg. And that's interesting, for sure. But I did not see it as an Academy Award nominated movie, I'm wrong about that This has got a bunch of nominations uh, but I didn't see it as, as big a film as many people felt it was but I liked it, it's worth seeing uh, and um, everything everywhere all at once I think here again will be a dark horse it's going to come out of the blue and uh, surprise a lot of people uh, so that's directors, yes.
0: And what are your thoughts? You mentioned streaming, and, and I think you, you, many people would agree, seeing a film on the big screen it doesn't really compare when you're talking about, even if it's at home, on, on a big screen TV. But what are your thoughts on streaming films and, and that, that that have kind of made inroads or that are now included in these award ceremonies?
4: Yeah, and I'm glad to see that. For example, Best Animated Feature Film uh, has a nomination for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and that was made for streaming by Netflix, and uh, it is a quite a remarkable picture. Uh, it's not your dad's Pinocchio or your mom's Pinocchio. This is a pretty dark, bleak picture. It takes place in the 1930s uh, during the fascist uprising in Europe, and it's not a pleasant movie in some respects, but it's a movie that um, wouldn't have been made by a major studio and wouldn't have shown up in most big theaters, but we have an opportunity to see the vision of the, the creator here, Del Toro, and see how he has an interesting take on it, Um, and and that's true with uh, some of the others. The Causeway is a movie that uh, was only on Apple+, and it was just perfect for that that, uh, venue. Uh, It was good for a streaming film because it's a small film, so we don't have any big vistas. We don't have any big action. We just have a lot of talking heads, and that really works well for streaming, Joe.
0: All right. Well, a lot of buzz around these nominations and leading up to the big ceremony. Rick, we will leave it there for today, but great to catch up with you. Great to chat with you again.
4: Good talking with you, Jill. Thanks a lot.